Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the European Union's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to have Mike DeFranzo, our Washington National Tax Services International Tax Leader and former Deputy Associate Chief Counsel International at the IRS. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. Happy to be here. So lots of speculation about future regulations that we're going to see as a result of the TCJA. And what I was hoping to talk to you a little bit about today is understanding a little bit more about what the IRS's role is in these regulations. And so I thought I'd start with you were the Deputy Associate Chief Counsel International. First of all, what the heck does that actually mean? When did you do sure. that? And you know, shed a little bit of light on what, what, what takes place at the IRS with respect to, to policy decisions. Right. It is a long title, and it was actually even longer than that because it had technical behind it in a parenthetical. So it was a really long title, and uh, often it was difficult to get out on a panel. So I just shortened it. I'd say Dep Tech okay. was, was the short, uh, what we'd refer to the position. So maybe just quickly, I want to talk a little bit about the, the high-level structure where the, where the IRS Office of Chief Counsel International is today. There is an Associate Chief Counsel, which is the lead. There are three deputies. One is field services. They generally deal with things that are happening with the field. Uh, that means uh, examinations, controversies. There's a special projects uh, designation, and that is a floater, but again, mostly dedicated to the IRS and the mm -hmm. field and the activities that are happening. The third is tech, um, which is the position I had. And that position is in charge of all the cross-border guidance that is issued by the government. Everything comes through DEP tech. And <clears throat> when you look at that, that role, um, there's generally a lot to keep you busy, but this next year and the year following, it's going to be a really, really busy time for the current uh, current person hold, holds that position, which is Dan McCall. So you say that, you know, th this guidance comes through. Well, I mean, my understanding is the guidance like starts with Treasury, right? That's ultimately Treasury's responsibility. Can you shed a little light I, on I, what? Shed light on that. So if you, you know, if you're a tax guy and you sort of look at the, the volume of revenue rulings and things that exist, they all kind of stop uh, in the 1980s. And the reason they stopped in the 1980s is there was a delegation of authority that was written by a a then acting secretary of the treasury who delegated all authority, pull it away from the IRS. The IRS used to be in charge of forms, instructions, rev rules, rev procs. Um, regs were always uh, part of the department of, or department of treasury office tax policy, but it all got pulled over the office tax policy. And what that meant is all the other stuff kind of stopped. Um, Treasury has, you know, sort of the delegation of authority, but they don't have the resources to write the regs. At any given time, the entire Office of Tax Policy might have 30 people in it. If you look at what international, the International Tax Council and all the support for that role, that's 10 people. And you cannot write all the regs that they need to write and do all the things that they need to do with those 10 people. One, they don't have all the specialties they need, and two, they just don't have the capacity. So the Office of Chief Counsel... You go over there, and that's where you find the muscle. And that is where you find the deep technicians that can deal with international pension plan issues. You've got people that can deal with all the nuanced things. Um, and and, it, and the, office of, the Office of Chief Counsel is at the IRS. It is. It is technically, it sits underneath 
the general counsel of the treasurer uh, of the treasury excuse me and they are the lawyers for the irs they are not necessarily part of the irs but they are the lawyers for the irs so they report up through the chief counsel which is one of the presidential appointees and then he or she reports up to the general counsel of the treasury however their client is the irs they sit in the the irs is building an 1111 constitution let me uh just kind of set the stage here a little bit mm -hmm. with a little bit of high-level history. Mm -hmm. The Office of the Associate Chief Counsel International was formed in 1986. Why is that significant? Because that's the last time we had big reform. And what's interesting is you look, I, and I only know this because I saw an old phone list, there were six, about 66 people in the office at the time it was formed. And it was formed by pulling a lot of other people from other groups, and um, it was set on its merry way, and it's been growing ever since. Uh, when I had uh, my role, which was 2006 to 2010, we hit a peak of about 120 people in the office. Since then, though, the number's gone way down. It's gone down because the um, APA group moved away, um, had some other resources that were directed officially over to the IRS and out of uh, the Office of Chief Counsel. And I will tell you the number, I don't know the low point uh, in recent history, but I think it was in the 70s, like maybe, okay. let's say 75. But they're ramping up and they've been ramping up. There's 10 open positions that they've advertised and I can tell you I've, the most I ever saw in my four years there was a huge hiring frenzy we had for three spots uh, once. Okay. It was usually every other year you get one or two. Um, so to have 10 people coming in, they are pushing to get the resources back up. Why do they have to get the resources up? Well, because we had reform and there are a lot of regs that need to be written. Plus, they have to do their day job too, which is to support the field, deal with all the issues, all the PLRs and all the other things that come up. So let's, there's this, there's a video you can find on YouTube, which is, you know, how a bill becomes a law. Yeah. You've seen that, that oh, cartoon. Absolutely. I love absolutely. it. I've used it when I've spoken yes. at a number of different conferences. Well. Take me through how does a reg become a reg? I you mean, bet. just from really from the beginning to ultimately, and we've got this new process through OMB, which I think, which is the Office of Management and the Budget, to yeah. new score things, yeah. which I think is kind of an X factor, which I don't think was, was that process wasn't there when you were there. But take me from the very beginning of wh who initiates it, uh, when it finally gets released on the IRS's servers to the public. All right, so every, everything works from what's called the P PGP, the Public Guidance Plan. And that Public Guidance Plan is, is put together, generally the Office of Chief Counsel um, comes together with their group, so it would be, in this case, the Office of Chief Counsel International comes together with ITC, have a meeting in April, and they make a list of all the things they need to do and want to do that year. And then they will get buy-off from the commissioner's side. The commissioner's side doesn't play a real hands-on role, but they do look at what they what's in there, and they are a stakeholder, and there are things that they want to push through as well. So everybody comes with their list. When you look at the list, at times it's been as many as 70, 80, 90 projects that might be on the list. Other times it's whittled down with a lot of run-on sentences, and you might see it be 50. Um, but the reality is, at any time, there's really about 300 guidance plan projects in the works. And that's because there are component parts to guidance plan. And the truth is when they kick out one of those, they actually get credit for, for knocking out one of the whatever's on their plan. And that's important to, uh, to say they're making progress and to show they're making progress. Um, the executives are evaluated, uh, do get bonuses based upon their ability to 
uh, get a percentage of completion on the public guidance plan. So that's the first thing you do. You have the list. All right. Then you so, have, so let me can ahead. I pause you there on the, the the list. So I assume this year everybody kind of knew what the list was, right? I mean, we know we need to see first of all nine sixty five. Yeah. Um, we know we need to, and then all of the other various provisions of reform. So I guess that right. list was maybe a little bit easier this year or longer. It, it was probably longer because usually the list is comprised mostly of carryover items um, because things don't get done or they they clicked off one but not the whole rest of the, the items in the run-on sentence. So you have a lot of carryover items. And then there's whatever target they want to set for different things, things they're seeing in the market, concerns that taxpayers are having. Um, ABA comes in and meets, other stakeholders write comments. It's an open sort of um, period where all the, all the ideas about what should be on the list come in. This year, well, it's pretty obvious. You're right. right. You're looking at the tax reform, and the tax reform is mm. king and priority across the board. So a lot of things that need to get done, have needed to get done, are going to be put off again. And I think tax reform is going to take priority. Now, the exception to that is any reg that is a temp reg that is sunsetting. And we just saw the 7874 or anti-inversion regs are an example of that. Nothing to do with reform. However, because of the three-year sunset rule, if they didn't uh, convert those temp regs into final regs, they would have reverted to proposed regs and you wouldn't have had binding law. So they had to get those out. So any temp reg will get done on schedule. Other than that, it's reform, reform, reform. And who's typically at that meeting and who ultimately decides you know, what, what the priority is and sure. what that list? So the, the list, um, when it comes together, it's a, it's a big meeting, but the truth is you, you might have 300 items and it might show publicly as, as 90 items or whatever they decide it to be. Um, but then it's really the ITC, the, the Dep, Deputy uh, Associate Chief Counsel International Technical, I'll just keep referring to as Dep Tech, um, come together along with the ITC and Deputy ITC. And they drive priorities, and they do that through a meeting that at least when I was there used to occur every Tuesday morning. Every Tuesday morning, those four would meet, and you would decide um, and fine-tune. I mean, sometimes you had to move things around a little bit, but you would be getting feedback on where where are the projects, what needs to happen next. Um, that's feedback coming from below and feedback um, coming from above. And you start working through the plan and managing it that way. So we have a, a list then of, a list. What we're, of what regs are going to you know, be the subject of, of future regs. Right. Then, then what's next? Who starts drafting? And I know there's lots of you know, newer, younger lawyers. Sure. And kind of how, how does the sausage sure. get made? So every, every project's got a drafting team that gets put together. The drafting team is composed of traditionally one attorney from the Office of Tax Policy and then a collection of attorneys from the Office of Chief Counsel. Um, as I noted, um, the muscle has to come from the Office of Chief Counsel, just given the number of bodies. And there might be three or four people, usually within a branch specialty. So if you're dealing with an anti-deferral rule, it's going to be a branch two resource. If it's foreign tax credit uh, uh, reg, it's going to be branch three. If it's M&A, it's branch four. And so they break up that way. The and branches are really just like divisions are, based on specialty areas? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so then you have uh, the Treasury attorney sits in those meetings, and that working group will go through, um, do an issues list. Uh, they will look for public comment. They will read articles. They will take 
um, what they know internally about the, the rules. Um, here, you know, obviously they're reading some of the colloquies and, and they're reading the legislative history, um, they're reading the statute, they're listening in at conferences, they're really in an information gathering uh, point and then they start pushing forward with a draft. Those drafts then start to circulate. There's a, there's a process of what's called green and then, and then a reg will go pink. When a, a reg goes green, it's released for circulation. Now, that reg at that point is simply a draft and that that reg will get comments. So for example, that you might be saying something in there that has an effect on the corporate space or partnership space or FIP, which is financial institutions and products. And those associate offices have an ability to comment at that point. Um, the IRS itself um, may comment at that point and say, this isn't gonna work or it's in conflict with something we're doing. And it's really just a, a chance to sort of level set what you've got. The green, um, when something goes green, it's it's getting close. And by so maybe before we sure. get to the before we get to the green, because um, there are so many uncertainties with tax reform just based on ambiguous, and I'm trying to be generous, gen, or, uh, generous, ambiguous statutory language. I, is there a process that Treasury or the IRS or the tech can can go and and inquire to? you know, Congress as far as what their intentions were and because there obviously there were a, a number of uncertainties and as I mentioned, ambiguities in, in the conference report. Yeah. But what is typically the interaction between those that are drafting the regs and then those that had originally drafted the statutory language? Yeah, well, that's it's a, a great question and one I can't completely answer because unfortunately I didn't sit on tax reform like just happened, but I did see legislation go through when I was there, um, certainly with FATCA and other, other big... Um, uh, provisions uh, as well as some other acts that, that kick through some rules. Um, there's a lot of conversation with JCT. Um, typically, and, and what is JCT? So JCT is Joint Committee on Taxation. They are a, a, a bipartisan or nonpartisan group that sits on the Hill. So they're responsible to both Democrat and Republican. They do fall under whoever the majority is, uh, th their leadership and respond to them. But they're the ones who are the technicians that sit on, on the Hill. And they, do they serve kind of both? The, both uh, the Senate, as they, far as Senate finance, as do. well as House Ways and Means? They do. They serve both. Um, and what they're doing right now is they're writing what's called the Blue Book. So the Blue Book is the general explanation of the tax bill. And what they try to do is they try to take the law as it's written, as well as all the conference reports, um, reconcile all of that. And that's a tough, tough task here because, as we know, the, the conference reports don't necessarily match the language in a lot of cases of the statute. And then they try to put it in as plain English as you can um, with something that is usable as to what they think Congress meant. And that blue book, while not necessarily legislative history, is very useful to taxpayers. Um, it's very important for the government to look at. People try to stay consistent with it. Um, so I expect right now there's a lot of conversations going on with JCT. Now, there's also the unsolicited. Do we know, before we leave the, sure. the Blue Book, do, when does that usually come out? I'm, I, I don't remember what the, when from the from 87, when that, what, yeah. when, when that came out. But it seems like, boy, doesn't that need to come out so that that could then shed some light to those that are drafting the I, regs? I, I can tell you right now, I think the Blue Book's going to come out after, after we get 965 regs. Okay. Um, so it, you just can't wait for it in all cases. In some cases, uh, you can wait for it. But in this case, 
they've got to move. And there's a reason they got to move. There's a provision in the code 7805B, which requires for any regulation to have effect back to the date of enactment, it must be issued and final within 18 months. So when you look at the blue book, the blue book, if they get it done by the end of this calendar year, I will tell you that's that's them working very fast to get it done. There's a lot to talk about. I, I don't know exactly when the Blue Book came out um, for, for the 86 Act, but I think it was 1987, so I think it was at least a year um, for them to put it out. Here, it's gonna be similar. So let's say it's December. The reality of the regs here, we're gonna have 965 regs this summer. We're gonna have probably 163J regs. We might have hybrid regs drop in the fall, and then there's gonna be a race to put out the big ones for Guilty, FDII, and BEAT. Um, by December. Now, I'm not super confident they're going to make that, but they're going to push for it. They might make it. It might be January. It might be February. Um, but they're going to come out in and around that time, I would expect. It's not as important, though, for those regs to be retroactive. The one that's really important for it to be retroactive, I think, is 965. So I'm pretty confident that's coming out this summer. Okay. So we'll wait. To, to, everybody's anxiously awaiting the blue book. <laughs> Theoretically, that will come out before the other set of reg packages. By the time this or, goes public, we might already even have the 965 regs. Yeah. Um, and and so so okay. So um, we you, you talked about how the 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 reg writers are you know work and try to collect right. as much information. I also think it, sure. it's interesting that they look at commentary, they listen to panels. Yes. We've obviously seen the New York State Bar Association's yes. report, so they're collecting as much information as as they can to presumably understand congressional intent and then also think from a policy perspective, digging even deeper to maybe some things that Congress hadn't contemplated. What are all the various sort of technical nuances that they need to to contemplate? All of that and one more big one, which is administrability. So when you have a rule, it has to be administrable. It has to be administrable for the government and for taxpayers. You have to be able to comply with it, and they have to be able to examine it and audit it. So while something might be more perfect from a policy or theoretical standpoint, if it's not administrable, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay. So you talked about the pink sheets. And um, did I call that well, correctly? Well, you call the pink sheets. Pink sheets might be a, a, a bad term. Um, it is pink. So there's there's the process you go through green and then you go through pink. Okay. When something's in pink, that means that reg is done and it's there for final sign off. So it's okay. signed off first in the Associate Chief Counsel International's office. Second sign off point is with the uh, it's it's actually the deputy chief counsel uh, technical will sign off on it. And you also get a sign off from the commissioner's office and then it's signed off in uh, the office tax policy, but it's not just the office tax policy. You have to get general counsel uh, buy-in. You have to get exact sec buy-in. You have to get you know. There's a lot of there's a lot of signatures, um, I, and I know that that kids rock. Uh, you know, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. There's not really a song that goes with it, but it is a, an onerous process of getting things through. And you have some big stakeholders. I mean, the commissioner's view on things could be very different than the office chief counsel and the office tax policy, and you're trying to get everybody to come together. One thing I would say about a reg, there's no such thing as a reg that comes out that makes everybody happy. Never happens. And it doesn't matter um, who, who they are. It, you could be uh, the assistant secretary and say, I want it this way. Um, and yes, you've got the delegation of authority, but the reality is the commissioner has a pretty strong voice and so does the chief counsel. And so everybody's compromising along the way. 
and you, you get something out and it always comes out and inevitably these things are written while they, they listen to comments, they get comments, they listen to panels, they get all kinds of solicited advice about how to do things uh, from all kinds of people. It's still done in a vacuum. Nobody outside of government really sees it until it's issued. And then that's, that's when that proposed reg comes out, that's when a flood of comments come in and those comments are really what drive and fine tune the reg before it's final. Yeah. So before we, because I definitely want to talk a little bit about understand how this the comment process sure. worked. We had some, you know, the, the courts actually weighed in as as part it. of that process. But before we go there, the difference between a temp reg and a proposed sure. reg, and does that change kind of the process? But first of all, what is the difference uh, between a temp reg and a proposed reg, and is there is the process any different for the two? Sure. Well, every every reg that comes out is a proposed reg, including a temp reg. So there's a proposed reg that comes out. Now, there's another reg. When you see proposed and temp, it's actually two regs. So there's a proposed reg and there's a temp reg. Now, the temp reg will just adopt what's in the proposed reg. The temp reg has the effect of making it uh, have the same weight as though it's final um, from the time the proposed reg is issued. So I would expect the 965 regs, for example, we're going to see this summer, are going to be proposed in temp. They're going to give us proposed regs, and then they're going to have a temp reg that goes with it to give it force and effect. Now, they only have three years to finalize before that temp reg must come off, and, and it just falls off and then it just reverts to temp. But if they can finalize it in that window, and in this case, they've got the competing 7805B, they've got 18 months. They don't have three years. They've got 18 months if they want to go back to date of enactment. So they have to get it done by next summer. Anything that they want retroactively effective to the date of enactment has to be final by next summer. So the temp just really gives um, Treasury the opportunity to have it apply that proposed reg, potentially apply immediately. Correct. But then the proposed reg is actually what is being proposed. And then that is the one that has to go through the notice and comment period Correct. before it becomes final. Exactly. So let's talk about this notice and, and comment. Um, what, what is involved in that? You know, how sure. much deference does Treasury really need to give to taxpayers and other stakeholders that are commenting? Well, I, I, you know, de deference is an interesting question. I, I don't know that they have to give any deference, but they, this court certainly say they have to they have to deal with all comments that are written in and address them. And they generally do. Um, but you can see the volume of comments that come in. Not every comment is addressed with a, a line within the, the preamble of a proposed reg or final reg. When it goes final, that's what you're going to see in the preamble, a very long preamble um, because of some of the cases you referenced um, where some regs have been challenged and held to be invalid because they really didn't address the comments. They have to address them. It doesn't mean they have to go with what people are saying, but they have to say why they didn't. And they have to at least acknowledge that those were looked at. And the reality is they were always looked at. It's not that they're just starting to look at them. They've always looked at them. But they have to now acknowledge that they have. So the preambles have gotten longer. Good news is preambles are like an instruction manual to the reg. So when you read a really robust preamble, you get a really good sense mm -hmm. of what the reg's doing. And sometimes it's a lot easier to read that and then read the reg. Uh, itself some people's minds work better they read the reg and then they go back and read the preamble but I, i'm a for the record i start with the preamble kind of guy <laughs> then go and then then read the reg then come back but yeah. I, everybody's got their own taste that's right that's right so it's it's um 
it's fascinating, but the volume of paper we're going to see, I mean, just even you take 965. I mean, that's a one-off, one-time provision, but it's possible. We've got three notices out there right now. Everything in those notices is going to be in the, the temp and proposed reg um, and more. It'll, there'll be more. So when you take general statements in a, in a notice and convert them to reg language, it's not that easy. Um, but you do it and you're looking for precision. When you're writing the reg, you have to be precise. When you're writing a notice, you can be vague in general. So you look for that pre precision. And I can just think back at big reg packages like the dual consolidated loss package was a 200 page reg. Um, we are going to see some regs like that, in particular for guilty, probably for uh, beat. And we're going to see a really hefty one for 965. Fitty might be a little shorter um, for for FDII, but um, they're still going to be long regs. So how does the process work? Because you talked about the the 18 month window, right? Do all of the, those proposed regs have to become final right before? And then, so that means that they have to go through this notice and comment period and then integrate those comments into the process. But I mean, I just, holy cow, that seems like a lot of work and a lot of things to be done before the middle of, but about a year from now. Yeah. Well, you did, I love that you said that they have to become, no, they don't. In fact, if you went through and did a count of all the regs that are out there that are still proposed, but PFIC back to, to 1991, they're still proposed. The 163J, those have been proposed, you know. So they don't have to become, I mean, even as proposed regs, it's still helpful guidance. The problem is it's not binding. So if they want something binding, it has to be final, or in the interim, it has to be temp. And 965, this time around, not last time around, they just did it with notices, if you rem remember, for 2004. And they never finalized any, but they never even wrote a proposed reg. They just did notices because it was a one-off provision. This time around, because it applies to all taxpayers with offshore operations, and the stakes are bigger, and they're going to want to enforce it. We're going to see a proposed and temp reg, and then we, we are going to see a final reg. And that final reg, I'm almost certain, will be final before that 18 months is up. So after that comment period, I assume there's kind of a similar process that everything that goes around, the, the appropriate review and signatories all happen before that reg actually becomes same, final? Same process, the green and pink, um, with the working teams going through. Um, it's the exact same process. Uh, I would say the stakes are higher. Um, they start looking at, you know, when something's final, it's hard to pick the pen back up. And even when they later recognize there's mistakes, it's difficult um, because there's other priorities. And you're like, well, we're, we're, you know, sometimes it's the horseshoes and hand grenades. We're close enough. Um, and you let it go and you have, we'll get to it later. Well, sometimes later it can be 10 years or 20 years. Um, sometimes it's faster. Sometimes it's faster. So final kind of topic or question is this OMB review. There's been yeah. a lot out there in text commentary. What does that mean? How is that different from when you were in, you know, in, in the government as far as that process? Sure. Um, you know, I think it was uh, everything always went through and every administration, it's a little bit different and it has to do with having the right people in place. There's times, uh, for example, in the last administration where there wasn't necessarily uh, an assistant secretary the whole time. There was someone who was who was acting in the, the role and that changes some of the sign offs and it might draw in general counsel more or other. Those things um, slow up. They inevitably slow it up because it's just more eyes, more people looking at it. 
um, more people who aren't honestly as deep in tax looking at it and asking questions. And so there's briefings. There's a lot of briefings along the way. Sometimes you'll have, even for uh, a reg, you'll have a joint assistant secretary briefing with the chief counsel where there's big policy calls to be made. Um, other times, not. I mean, it'll be left at the, the two international pieces of the office tax policy and chief counsel. But OMB, that is a little bit of an unknown mystery, I think, to everybody. I don't think OMB is going to be looking to slow anything down, but at the same time, it's difficult to keep when as soon as you add another level, um, it will slow things down. A little and bit. what is the OMB as far as their so role the that Office they play of in management budget? And they're really looking. Um, there, were, there was a lot of questions about reg abuse uh, at different times in government and whether that was true or not. It, you know, that's, I think, more of a political uh, question. Um, but OMB is there to take a, a careful look at what's being done. Um, the problem is they're not necessarily, st I mean, you've got 100 people in the office of, of Chief Counsel International, you've got 10 people, and these guys are focused international tax lawyers. And then you're going over to OMB and they're gonna look at it and I don't know what their resources are gonna be. They're gonna rely on briefings. They're gonna rely on some of their own resources to make some judgments. They may have some questions. It's possible they send things back. The first time it's really going to be tested is 965. Mm -hmm. So we know it's we know the reg has been teed up for OMB right now. So it could come out at any time. I think they've got 45 days. I don't quote me on that, but I'm going to guess that it's about 45 days is, is my recollection to review and approve or or make changes to a reg. Well, Mike DeFranzo, our Washington National Tax Services International Tax Leader, this has been a fascinating window into the reg writing process. As somebody who's new to the Beltway, um, I, have a, had a, I have a lot of questions, and I think you certainly shed some light on how the process works. So thank you for that. Thanks, Doug. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tech Services Leader. We'll see you in two weeks for the next episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks.